we want. So we'll stay in large group today. And uh, the first thing I wanted to do is do a little bit of a check-in about sitting practice in regards to painful physical and mental experiences that arise for us and what you're learning and whether you found the instructions from Bhante Gunaratana useful that were sent out a, a while back. The instructions have been pretty simple. Just to summarize his instructions is to see that there is sensation. So that's not actually as easy as you might think when there's pain in the body to actually be able in that moment to recognize that there are sensations there. And then to be interested in the sensations. And then to intend to relax. So start with the body. So we're intending the body to relax around the sensations. And basically that same intention then for the mind. Or you can do the body and the mind together. And then uh, in Jack or in Joseph Goldstein's book, Insight Meditation, he talks about, you know, as a means or as a strategy, something like I suggested near the end of the sit tonight, where you're checking with the mind, is the mind able to distinguish the specific qualities of that pain, of that discomfort? Because you have to be interested, you have to cease resisting or cease distracting yourself in order to recognize the specific qualities of the pain. And then if you can, if you can see some of the specific qualities, then you can notice, you can ask the question even, like, is there a center or a point where this pain is most intense? Does it have a center right now in this moment? And if so, can I, will the attention go there? Will the attention be, is the attention willing to open there at the center? And then what happens? So it's all different strategies of maintaining an interest. What happens when I notice the center of this pain, I open to the center of the pain, I receive it, get interested in it? He calls it, uh, Joseph Goldstein calls it following the dots. You know, so there it's most intense there, and then the next moment it's most intense here. Because part of what the mindfulness of physical pain is revealing, um, it's going beyond the idea that the mind, the thinking mind, creates that it's bad. You know, it, it has a conceptual overlay. It defines it in some way with a concept, an idea. This hurts. This is bad. This ain't fair. But the actual experiencing of the pain is something that's very alive. It's moving, it's changing, it's unfolding. The other point that Joseph Goldstein recommends, he calls it like uh, as if it were a particle accelerator. Now, I'm not sure how he gets, makes that connection. But the going back and forth between mindfulness of the pain and then mindfulness with a meditation object like the breath, back to the pain, back to the breath. Going back and forth 
because they do different things to the mind. The intensity of the pain really gathers the mind in a powerful way. Pain is a powerful anchor for attention, right? But it tends to trigger aversion. So you use the pain to really strongly gather the attention. Now the attention strongly gathered. And then you look at the breath, which isn't intense. It's just the breath. But the attention strongly gathered. But now the mind remembers it's okay to relax. I can just let the breath be. And, it, and the mind is reminded to be soft, non-controlling, non-resistant. And then you go back to the pain, and there's that tendency of the mind to really gather itself there because the object of the pain is so interesting or intense. So you, can, you get the idea how they can really support each other going back and forth. Now, you don't have to use the breath. You can just open to hearing or open to the whole body as a you know, one big object of sensation, and then specifically to the center of the pain and the whole body. So there are different ways. Because I found in my practice, I bet some of you have noticed this too, it's like, it's actually uh, an expression of weakness in the mind. Like, I'm going to be with this pain because the relationship I have with this pain is I have no, my mind has no nimbleness. It's like, if I move, it will be overwhelming. And so we're, we're in this static, the, the attention is in this static relationship with the pain that we're like just hanging in there, hanging in there, and we're just hoping for something to happen, like the pain will go away or something good will happen. But we've, the mind has lost its wisdom, basically, or the mindfulness of the pain has lost its wisdom. Because wisdom is always, always has a, a nimbleness to it. It's that nimbleness, that curiosity and the interest that is reminding the mind that it's safe. Whenever there's a quality of being frozen or static, it's almost always a defense system. And whenever the mind's defensive, it's not wise, it's afraid. It's sort of like a little child that, you know, thinks if I squeeze onto the covers, the monster in the closet isn't going to get me, or something like that. It's a very simplistic strategy to just freeze. You know, we, we see that at times, you know, we, we even have that, that phrase, like a deer in headlights you know, where we're paralyzed a little bit. And we want to make sure that we're not mistaking that for being brave with pain, like being sort of static or frozen in a way, tight in a way. Let me just read this uh, from one of the articles that I scanned and sent to you, and thanks to Steve for <laughs> upwriting the articles. Scott's going to give me a tutorial on how to do this in the future. So this is near the end of Jack Hornfield's chapter on the three characteristics, or the section that's on suffering in the book, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. He says, It is important to understand that our vision of these basic characteristics get clearer as we continue to practice. 
If we look to meditation to lead us only to quiet and bliss, we will become disappointed. Naturally, more peaceful and balanced states develop when mindfulness grows in us. For many people, there, arises, there arise periods where the mind and heart are open to integrate and tender silence. There arise periods of stillness and, at, and times when the heart and mind are filled with, a, with light and a profound sense of peace and well-being. Yet this clarity and contentment develop together with a deeper and deeper ability to see and allow suffering. This is another dynamic and maybe another way of talking about the dynamic that I just mentioned between paying attention to the pain and paying attention to the breath or some neutral object. When we, when the mind does open to more stillness, let's say, peace, inner peace, then not only is that peace and stillness healing, but it leaves behind a greater, more profound sensitivity. And then what is the mind sensitive to? Well, it's sensitive to the very real, unavoidable dukkha, stress, uneasiness, whether it's just on the basic level of physical discomfort, physical uneasiness, as well as these other more subtle, but in a ultimately more difficult or more um, hard, harder to bear levels of dukkha that aren't on the surface like physical pain often is. Yet this clarity and contentment develop together with a deeper and deeper ability to see and allow suffering. As we pay attention, we grow to experience more fully the suffering of the body. Superficially, we find periods of aches, pains, progressive aging, and illness. More profound attention reveals patterns of much more deeply held tensions, powerful fires, releases of heat, cold, throbbing, pressure, vibration, and the forces within us that grasp and hold this body. Even um, Even more careful and concentrated attention can bring us to feel a cellular level of fire and suffering. As we examine the mind in the present, its thoughts and feelings, additional suffering reveals itself. At first, this may be through touching or painful moods and feelings, grief, sadness, past wounds, fear, anger, jealousy, and more. Then awareness grows to see how it is, not just these feelings, but any movement of mind whatsoever that creates suffering, any wanting, The very tension of liking and disliking itself is suffering. As we continue to practice, our suffering shows itself in another profound form as our awareness touches the senses more keenly. And and in very silent moments, we can experience how the objects that contact senses themselves are sources of suffering. You can even, you know, just like any sensation whatsoever. And you notice this sometimes, you know, like you can even touch, you know, maybe a child, maybe one of your kids. And, you know, but sometimes even the lightest touch that's meant to be soothing or, but because contact, sound, sight, touch, thought, smell, and taste, 
it's a it's an impact. It it impresses on the mind. It it's an impact. And so when the mind or the heart is profoundly sensitive, it's a we realize how intense it is to be a sensitive creature. Mostly, of course, we're dull or our attention is superficial, so we don't notice how intense it is to be sensitive. Just as an aside, you know, you know, historically the Buddha had his awakening under the Bodhi tree. He became an arahant at that point, or someone who was fully enlightened as Many women and men have awoken to the same insight. But in Theravada Buddhism, and just I think generally in Buddhism, there's what's called parinibbana, the time of death, when an awake person, someone who's freed themselves from greed, anger, and delusion, passes away, the body dies, that this is uh, the final liberation. Because even though a wake person, now I don't know this directly, of course, but as it's described, an awake person is free of greed, anger, and delusion. So they're moving about. They're still sensitive to sense experience. The heart, the sensitivity of the mind and body is still being impacted by seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So... Even though the mind knows better than to react to the sense experience, to take it personally, to relate to it with greed or aversion, it's still being impacted. And so at the moment of death, it's considered the ultimate liberation because, and this is always the great mystery as it's described in Theravada Buddhism, you know, <clears throat> that sensitivity ends ceases, and there is nothing remaining. It's like there is no trace at that point. And so when they'd ask the Buddha, you know, where, what happens to the Buddha after death, generally the Buddha was silent, because you can't answer that question. And it, it sort of misunderstands that who the Buddha is or what the Buddha is now. But at the very end, at death, then there's not even sensitivity left. So that's sort of an aside, but just uh, kind of pointing in the same direction. So uh, Jack Cornfield continues to end this. He's ending this section now that he wrote on working with Dukkha. Seeing the extent of the suffering can be enormously freeing, but seeing alone, seeing it alone is not enough. We have to soften our bodies and hearts to receive it, to open to its truth in a wise and tender-hearted way. This is a big part of our practice. Only through acknowledging and opening to suffering can we stop and come to rest. Can we find stillness and a deeper ground of goodness and well-being? It is the suffering that, that prompts us to let go, to live more lightly. By touching the suffering, we can awake the fullest compassion within us. And I think I mentioned uh, in one of the previous two weeks that the Buddha was very clear that 
uh, he said something like, to think that someone can awake to freedom from suffering without opening to suffering, like, that's not going to happen. And I think the simile, if I'm remembering correctly, is if you think you can build the second floor of a house before you build the first floor of the house, it's not going to happen. If you think you're going to understand the experience of being free from suffering without understanding directly, immediately, the experience of suffering, it's not going to happen. Some of you have heard this before, but it's just a, a nice story because it really points to this, this experience we have where uh, it just makes sense to us to tolerate pain. And we tolerate it in all kinds of ways. I talked about, you know, just getting tight like a deer in headlights. And there's a sense of just hoping something will happen. If I just hang in there long enough, something will change. It will go away. But there are many other ways that we resist this opening to suffering. And the story that I like is the one that... uh, Robert Thurman tells about being in a subway in New York City, a really crowded subway, and knowing you only have a few stops, the strategy we take up to survive, you know, being around a lot of people we don't know, maybe a lot of them don't seem safe to us, you know, we all have our ways of being in social situations where we protect ourselves, we kind of, you know, put out our radar, don't don't mess with me, or I'm not going to respond to you, or whatever, however we do that, to protect ourselves. And then he says, but imagine you're going to be in that subway car forever, for eternity. And you see very quickly how the initial strategy is not going to make any sense. We need a different strategy. Now let's put this in light of working with pain. If we think that the physical, mental, you know, the different parts of life that are hard to bear, if we think we can just tolerate it or wait it out, it's based on this idea that we only have a few subway stops. It's only a few more minutes. Just got to hang in there, and it will go away. But it's, it's really misunderstanding our actual experience, which is there's always something around the corner. That the the difficulty, the mental and physical difficulty, actually is part of the fabric of being alive. So to wait it out or to um, just learn how to tolerate it, it may be a relatively useful strategy, but it's not a complete strategy. It doesn't really bring any significant release because... Even if we do hang in there long enough and things change and now it's not so bad, well, we know, even then when it's not so bad, we know it could get bad again or it will get bad again. So what's the other strategy? And the other point here is that, you know, in terms of the Buddha's invitation to open to dukkha. He organizes the Four Noble Truths, this first teaching he gave, around this turning toward what is hard to bear, is that unless we have a sense of being trapped, unless 
even as a skillful means, we pick up the idea and use it that there is no end to dukkha, or as uh, I think, uh, who's the teacher at the Cambridge Insight Center? Larry Rosenberg says, you know, uh, there, there is an end to suffering, but escaping suffering isn't the end. You know, in other words, denying it or running from it isn't the end, doesn't lead to an end. There is an end, but it isn't about escaping it. So we have to turn toward it. And we're not really willing to turn toward dukkha, even our own, our regular, ordinary knee pain or back pain, or whatever you felt tonight as we were sitting together. We're not really going to turn toward it unless we feel, in a sense, trapped, like there's no other way. As long as we think there's another way, like distraction works, denial works, waiting it out works, we're going to always try that first. I don't know if you have this experience when you get like a head cold or some kind of flu, but I, I find now, I'm, I'm seeing this pretty regularly, where, you know, in somewhat subtle ways, but still not very useful ways, I'm trying to control, trying to manage the cold. You know, and I pull out all my tricks, and I do this, and I do that, and, and then at some point, uh, there's that realization that, uh, like the cold has won. Or, and there's a deeper submission, like really letting it in. There's some sense that I don't want to fight this anymore. Don't want to deny it anymore. Take me. I'm yours. Throw me around. Beat me up. Do what you're going to do. But I'm not going to fight this anymore. And just like the first part might be a little bit off, I think the second part can be a little bit off. But what I've been learning is like to bring some of that later stage earlier in. And maybe it manifests as a kind of interest or sort of a releasing of any arrogant thought that I can beat this. I might beat this, but it won't be me beating this. You know, either it's going to take me and whip me and beat me up, or it's not, you know, depending on all the different things at play. This is going to be bad or not bad or I'll avert this one or I'll get this one will really tackle me and drag me down for a while. And to bring that humility right up at the beginning, like, so there's a real interest. Well, this will be interesting. It will be interesting to see how this unfolds. Instead of this arrogant, no, this can't happen. I'm too busy. What can I do, you know? which is how I tend, and I think a lot of us tend to respond in those initial moments when we have a sense of getting sick. Of course, what, what these moments can teach us, because they're going to keep happening, is that so much of the suffering of being sick or the suffering of knee pain or back pain is our misguided attempts to be happy or to be free of it. So it's the absence of the humility or the absence of the recognition that this is how life is sometimes. Sometimes it's painful and sometimes it's pleasant. Sometimes people like me 
and sometimes they don't like me. Sometimes my mind is clear, and sometimes it's really confused. Sometimes the heart is optimistic and hopeful, other times the heart is depressed and despairing. I mean, imagine if we lived that way so that whatever particular weather system the body and mind was experiencing would just sort of fit with our basic, the heart's basic understanding. Yeah, sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's like that. That would be great, wouldn't it, if all of our friends, if their response, you know, how we like to share with our friends how it is for us. And then no matter what we said to our friend, our friends, you know, they would say, sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's like that. You know, we say, oh, I'm having such a great day. Yeah, sometimes it's like that, and sometimes it's like this. And we say, yeah, feeling really sick, you know, I got this sinus pressure, and yeah, sometimes it's like that, and sometimes it's not. First, we'd want to beat him up <laughs> or ask him to leave. But, you know, after a while, after we began to trust where they were coming from, like assuming they were coming from a, a wise place, it might, it would sort of change like how we're going to be together because mostly we like being together by complaining or at least that's part of what we do when we're together. But to normalize that sometimes it's like this and sometimes it's like that. That's a different relationship with dukkha. In the Buddhist tradition, you know, you know about Mara, this personification of confusion, delusion, suffering, death, evil, when all, all that's bad, the sower of doubt, the great tempter. And Mara has four children. And uh, some of you know about this from the the story that's told about the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, and uh, Mara tries to distract the Buddha from having insight, from seeing clearly, you know, because the mind is afraid of opening to what's unknown. It's afraid of the unknown. So Mara arises as this fear. Actually, the interesting thing about Mara is Mara is also nature. And, and this nature of Mara, and in Buddhism, Mara is this great, Dewa, this celestial being, very powerful celestial being, not just some minor figure. I don't, I don't know how it is so much in the Catholic Church. I don't remember my catechism exactly, but you know, Satan was also potent, angelic celestial figure, right? Who slipped and fell, <laughs> but still an angel. So, uh, so Mara has children, and Mara was trying to, Mara arose as the Buddha's, you know, fear of letting go of the known and opening to the unknown. And Mara couldn't rock the Buddha, shake the Buddha, so he brought out his four children. And uh, there's the child that um, is the related to the heavenly realms, the godly realms, Dewa Putra Mara, this child's called. This is the habit of seeking pleasure to avoid or distract us from what is unpleasant or painful. And so one of the things that Mara 
this that tempted the Buddha is to like instead of this opening to what is unknown and, the, and whatever that fear might have been, how easy it would have been to be seduced by something pleasant, whatever that might be, and to see this as a. Uh, uh, like to see the dukkha in that. We want to see the dukkha in all four of these children, these expressions of our mind. It's dukkha to think that I can fill my life up with pleasant experience. Because what we're buying into, what the heart is buying into, is this endless need, dependency, on another pleasant experience. Sometimes I watch uh, some TV programs that you can get on the internet and uh, finished a series of programs last night. Um, and there's that such, such a distinct, empty feeling. It's like, I'll have to wait a long time before another season is available to be streamed on the internet. And uh, it's like a real grieving to that, that story that exists in my mind now of having, you know, it's the same thing if you're reading a series of books or whatever, you know, whatever story, probably not that different than following the stories of your friends. Like you have dinner and you hear about the person's life up until that point, and then you don't see that person for a while, and you don't know what's happening to them until you sit down with them or talk to them again. And so it's the same thing. It's a very pleasant thing to lose ourselves in somebody else's story, especially if it's dramatic and really gathers our attention, right? And so we get transfixed, and then it's gone. And what do we feel? We feel hunger, wanting to be transfixed, to be transported again. So that's one of our... Uh, experiences of dukkha, we want to notice this dukkha, that, that the movement of the heart towards something that's pleasant and beautiful, as nice as that is, we don't want to deny how beautiful some experiences are, how pleasant some experiences are, but we want to appreciate the hunger that goes with it, the deepening dependency the mind has, that it's going to hurt when that goes away. There isn't a pleasant experience without the mind's tendency to be dependent on it. You can't help it. So, I remember Sylvia Borstein saying once, you know, uh, I think it was around an operation that Sharon Salzberg was having and sent her a note saying something, you know, um, you know, I, I wish you well. And then she went on, but I, I really want you to be healthy. You know, it's, I, I have an agenda. I know I'm attached. And I'll take the consequences of that. And Sharon, I think, was an important, not just a good friend, but also an important teacher for Sylvia. And so, it's like, when we have beautiful experiences, and we should be really honest if there's attachment, don't be afraid of the attachment. Just be honest. And part of being honest with attachment is noticing or knowing that it's going to hurt when things change. That that just comes with that territory of falling in love or 
getting a new device that you really love, that you've wanted, and now you have it, and it's just like you thought it would be. It's really cool and great and helps you in your life in some ways or makes you happy in some way. But then also understand the other side of it, which is now the heart feels dependent on it. It will hurt when this goes away. So you can imagine it already going away. So you, so that you're, you're sort of like they do when you buy something on credit. You know, you pay for it for a long time. It's like you start paying the price of the loss right when you take it. I mean, imagine if we did that when we got married or fell in love or entered a partnership where you understood that the, that this is fragile, that someday, in some fashion, this will fall apart, either because one of us will die or something will happen. And we just lived with that and sort of paid the price moment by moment by moment of all of our pleasant experiences. So that's one dukkha to be aware of. The other child of, of Mara, Skanda Mara, Skanda, you might recognize that were the aggregates, five aggregates, just the mind and body. This is the habit, this uh, is coming out of a talk that John Travis, a spirit rock teacher, gave a number of years ago. This is the habit of constantly creating a new identity around our mind-body experience. So this is the hunger we have, like, or the dependency we have on sense experience. One of the profound things we learn in deeper states of concentration is in order to experience deeper and deeper states of concentration, you have to be willing to let go of ordinary sense experience. Like even just to get some concentration with the breath, you have to be willing to stop paying attention to your thoughts. That's a letting go or even the other sensations in the body to some degree, or sounds in the room. You can't be interested in all the sounds in the room, all the sensations in the body, all the thoughts in the mind, and start collecting your attention with the breath. You have to let it go. It's true with knitting. It's true with anything you let the mind absorb into. To get absorbed, you have to let go. And so by... Doing that, like you'll notice the attachment the mind has to its sense objects, to what it's sensitive to, to what it's hearing, what it's seeing, what it's feeling in the body, what it's thinking. We, you know, part of the view we have is we feel we have a right to look at, to investigate anything that we're sensitive to in any moment. But we don't realize what a cost that is, a cost there is to that sense of ownership of what we're sensitive to. Because I'm sensitive to so many things, and I feel I have a right to, to sort of look at, so there's suffering in that, that ownership of sensitivity. And so we can work on that. This is one of the, like I said, one of the things you really learn by some of these samadhi trainings where we're just taking the attention and bringing it back. And it goes here, and we take it, we bring it back. As each time we return, so this way you're not thinking of that as a failure, it's part of the practice to bring the attention back. We're realizing that it is okay, even though that's happening, it can be known, it's okay not to pay attention to it. 
You don't have to pay attention to that thought. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to compare this to that or analyze that or wonder about this other thing. All of that can be let alone. And you can just be here and now with this. So that's the second kind of dukkha, the dependency, the hunger we have to know what the mind or body is sensitive to in the moment. And then there's kalesa mara. You might recognize the word kalesa, the poisons, the defilements. So this is, uh, uh, John Travis says, this is the habit of emotionally throwing gasoline on the fire. Right? And it's this dependency on drama. It's like even though we know better, we like to stir the pot. It's like I see this in my relationship to win a lot, just like being provocative, just to be provocative, just because it makes life interesting. And maybe it's a fear of things just being boring or like not being dramatic and a hunger, desire, a need, dependency on things being dramatic, being interesting, you know, just kind of poking, being provocative, stirring the pot in different ways. This is why it's like good for me, someone like me, to be reminded of the Buddhist teaching on right speech about uh, not engaging in idle speech, really looking at where the speech is coming from. Is it coming out of some hunger, some need for drama, for something interesting, for, yeah, just something interesting? And because that dependency is dukkha, it's suffering, that neediness. And you'll see that all four of these children of Mara are pointing to a, a more subtle uneasiness of our heart that keeps the heart from being peaceful. And the last one is yama, Mara. Yama is the word for death. And this is the habit of being lulled into sleep when things are going well. So uh, another way of sort of forgetting, being forgetful. And this is dukkha too, because this sense that it's okay to be unconscious. As if, like, you know, the way to address suffering is to go into a deep sleep. I mean, that's often what people feel, like this is a wise approach to the dukkha in the world, is just to go into a deep sleep, whatever that might look like. I mean, literally, to go to sleep, to be depend, become more dependent on sleep but all the waking ways that we cut ourselves off, we think this is good enough. And that's dukkha too. It's like there's no way out of dukkha except for understanding it. And I noticed this last one a lot in my practice. Uh, It's a little bit what I was saying about this deer in headlights, like, as if there's some nobility in just sitting here and suffering. But there isn't any nobility in suffering. 
Their only nobility in suffering is the opening to it. It's the mind has to be balanced enough to be interested in it, to be learning something from it. If it's not, it's actually better to run from the suffering and to go refresh your mind somehow, to distract yourself from it. To just sit there and suffer, there's nothing noble in that. It would be better to find some way to get some refreshment until you can return with some interest. I'll just end with the poem and then save some time to hear from people and how this is looking in your practice. This is something I read, I think, in a Buddhist studies class not that long ago, maybe in the spring. Some of you might remember it. And I got this from a program that James Berez, uh, Berez gave, um, I think, when he was teaching in for the Madison community not too long ago. And the poem is from Joyce Wellwood, Wellwood and it's the, the Kini Speaks. My friends, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human work right beings, like human right beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed, as though life has had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild and her compassion exquisite, exquisitely precise, brilliant, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. And this last line is like that uh, line I shared in the email uh, earlier this last week that's also in that um, chapter from the book Seeking the Heart of Wisdom that was written by Jack Hornfield, where he talks about a Thai monk that had written in his cave, drew, drew a picture of a smiling Buddha and then wrote underneath that, Oh, joy to discover there is no happiness in the world. So we're really looking at transforming our relationship to dukkha, and we have so much ordinary discomfort to begin to explore, see how the mind relates, how the mind can tra transform its way of relating. So it would be nice to hear from people how you've been practicing with dukkha, both uh, maybe starting with physical pain, physical discomfort, but all the other ways, more subtle ways that you see it, ways that work, ways that haven't worked, questions you have, what comes to mind? even some, be nice to even hear some very specific moment-by-moment 
experiences from your sitting practice tonight when you open to physical pain, how you did that, what was the result? My name's Stacy, and I was mentally trying to um, conjure up some pain, like some feeling, because my body was feeling okay, but you know, during the day, there can be some mental um, defilements happening, and once I sit here, and that's what I find often when I'm here, that that doesn't arise, and so I'm like, I know you're hiding in there, or <laughs> you're there somewhere, but it doesn't, doesn't come around, I don't know. Yeah, so it's a, that's an interesting question. Now, some of us are going, boy, <laughs> I'd like that. <laughs> but uh, for some people, the samadhi element is relatively easily available. And the mind actually can use that, that skill of retreating to protect itself in a way that actually can get in the way of insight. So one of the things you want to do is get interested in the samadhi element, in the unification or peace or calm, ease of the mind, and look at the motivations for that. Like, is there some fear? Is there some attachment to that? Because that is dukkha right there. So even before, it's not even like, you're asking me to leave my samadhi or my peaceful place? No, but you can get interested in it because... If the motivations are off, because a lot of that is true, um, there will naturally develop in practice for all of us in different ways, but some, like, why do I have to be here? I can go to this nice place. Why would I want to be here? You know, in this ordinary, with this ordinary state of consciousness when I can be in this secluded, peaceful place. Well, we learn things in this ordinary state of consciousness that are harder to learn in a more refined state of samadhi. So you want, it's okay to go there, it's okay to be refreshed there, but then we want to get interested. And so same thing like when you're looking at the pain, like one of the things I'll notice is I'm really emphasizing the concentration when I'm opening the pain. But it's really important to emphasize the relaxation, not to like zeroing in, because probably what you're doing, what the mind is doing, is like, I really don't like this pain, so I'm going to get hyper-focused. And what will happen is the samadhi element will overwhelm the experience of painful sensations. It's like the concentration is pleasant. The concentrated and pleasant mind is knowing pain, but the concentration and the pleasantness of that is bigger than the pain that's being known. So we never learn about the nature of pain that way because the samadhi is masquerading the experience of dukkha. It's suppressing it. So uh, this is why, you know, just cosmologically speaking, why beings that are in the more refined realms, like angels or whatever, they don't, they're not, it's not as easy to have insight. The human realm in this sort of Buddhist cos cosmology is considered the best place. And it's even within this human realm, you know, we all know people who just have a really easy life, and we know people who have really difficult lives. 
you know, they're in a war zone or they're being oppressed in different ways or just had a terrible upbringing or whatever it might be, can't get a job. And we know that it isn't easy to practice in either of those two places. But if we have enough safety, enough comfort, but also enough dukkha, well then actually it's relatively easy to practice. So what I would do is I would let yourself settle into a beautiful place, but then at some point in your sit, um, I wouldn't intend that anymore. I wouldn't intend or direct my mind toward that really beautiful, refined place. So you might want to open your eyes, that might help. And just don't direct your attention in any way, which will generally bring your state of consciousness to a more ordinary state. And then in that ordinary state of consciousness with the ordinary wandering mind and the ordinary sensations of the body being known, then investigate, you know, use the Four Noble Truths. Oh, there is dukkha, there is some unpleasantness here. This should be understood. And just work through, you know, the process, the practice with that. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Stacy, for bringing that up. Yes, Bruce. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of pain in my hip right now, my knee. And um, it's like when the mind is aware of pain, it aversion is going to be triggered. That's Unless the mind has been completely purified, that's just going to happen. And the only break we'll get is to take the attention and give it to something so fully that it's unaware that the pain it's unaware of the pain, and so the aversion isn't being triggered. And then we get a break from that. We're not getting a break from the pain, we're just not paying attention to it. 
but we are getting a break from the aversion getting triggered. And that's really important. It can break the cycle. You know, they talk about this. I'm just working with my dad, and he's got a lot of pain from his cancer now. And, um, you know, they don't want pain to get too much. You want to stay on top of the pain meds so that, because otherwise the, the body, the mind rather, it gets in this habit of looking at the pain and responding with aversion. Looking at the pain and responding with aversion. And it, and it can't do anything but that. It, it gets in a pattern. And it's looking for pain, and it, and it responds with aversion. And you see that's a, a bad cycling, you know, feedback loop, where there's more pain, so we keep looking at it, and there's more pain, so it just gets overwhelming. So we need to break that, and you need to break it long enough, I mean, as best we can, and there are different ways. Sometimes you can't leave behind the pain, but you can just bring in a bigger and bigger container. So it's like you're feeling everything together. And so the pain in the hip or knee, it's one thing, but it's one thing among many, many things. This big, big movement of life experience that's being known. Other ways that we do it is like I said before, where you redirect the attention. But basically, you don't want to turn the attention back to the pain until there's enough wisdom, enough space in the mind, so that you're relating to the pain in a way that isn't triggering, isn't identifying with any aversion. Because we don't want to reinforce the aversion. That's the second arrow. When the mind takes the aversion personally, that's the second arrow. That tends to be much more uh, of the intense pain than the... uh, (laughs) Speaking of intense pain, my hip really hurts... Uh, that tends to be more pain than the uh, than the actual sensations themselves. It's just the mental resistance, the mental drama around it. And but let's not say that lightly, as if that's something we can just drop. Because it is as real as the physical pain, that mental fear or mental resistance or whatever quality that it has. It's not insignificant. And it's key, the key is that we don't, because we've had experiences in our practice where we've seen the ephemeral nature, like we've seen the whole drama, and then the second arrow drops away, and we get so much freedom from the mind that's resisting going away, then we think we can just play that card any time. And we don't realize that that happened because of particular conditions. And one of the particular conditions was the mind wasn't feeling oppressed by the pain. Even if it was just for a moment, the mind was truly interested, truly relaxed, because in that place of being relaxed or interested, it actually saw the impersonal nature of all of that second arrow, that resistance, and that's what caused the whole thing to implode. So... It's not enough to know that it ain't as real as it appears. The mind actually has to see in that moment that it isn't real, that the whole drama is this, that. And the proximate cause for seeing that it isn't real is to be relaxed with it, with the mental and physical pain of it. Yeah, Patrice. Um, 
I noticed that when sitting tonight and I have one like kind of constant pain, I shouldn't say constant, but like waves of a, a little spirit of care and pain. And it's easy, not easy, but it's really manageable in a sit like this to, to look at it, to watch it, to describe it. Partly because I noticed it's going to come from the end. So I mean, that, that's kind of one cause for being able to, I can watch this for half an hour. I can, but uh, in the middle of the night when that happens, it's, it's just, the night stretches endlessly. Mm -hmm. And then there's that, that sense of, oh, this is aging. And then what if this is how it's going to be only, I mean, the whole proliferation of the, the aging body, the dying body, um, and what if I'm not up to it? What if my practice is, I mean, there's just a whole lot of other sorts of stuff. And so one thing that's so helpful about the way you framed this tonight of being able to sort of go back and forth on isn't it interesting? One leg doesn't hurt at all, and the other one just feels like it's on fire, and there's no real difference. You know, it, it was just something that was more interesting, but I think a real key to that was that, that I relax and, and be with it, and much more descriptive, is really that sense, and this is going to come to an end, and I can move, and it'll be, be fine, and it's, it's the long-term, I said, the middle of the night, when the night just stretches endlessly, and something is hurting, and um, that's when I find it really challenging to practice, and often try to just do the meta chant over and over, you know, maybe take a little vitamin I, <laughs> ibuprofen. But um, it, it's that, um, it, it is sort of more the container, I think, that, that makes such a difference. Yeah. And, but we can learn lessons in that container that slowly, I think, gradually builds confidence. And one of the things, I mean, there's two things that, two ways that that insight deepens. One is that we, feel competent at using vitamin I, moving the body, chanting the metta sutta, you know, doing what basically these different ways to manage it. We, we feel like there's some competence. We have some tricks up our sleeve to prevent the mind from just shoot, keep shooting the second arrow over and over again, which is like imagining this is never going to end is a perfect example of shooting the second arrow because that idea is completely unbearable. It is. And people go crazy if, they, if that's all they do for a long time because they paint a picture that they then inhabit that this is unbearable. And in that world, it is unbearable. So we need a different tricks. One of the best tricks, of course, is to be able to take your attention and to disappear, to like go into stillness or the ultimate samadhi object is emptiness itself, to really focus on the empty nature of experience. But even just being with the breath, or paying attention to the other leg that's not hurting, or doing one thing like the metta sutta with your whole heart, can really break the cycle. So that's, I want to put that in the category of, of these different tricks or skillful means that we have to protect herself. And then, but the other gradual deepening insight is, uh, it's like not being afraid to be the miserable human being. So it's like 
not having to take up any of those tricks. Not being afraid even to be the frightened being, like this is never going to end. It's only going to get worse as I get older. So no matter what story the mind tells itself, no matter what physical experience arises here in the body, it's like the, the strategy here, the insight is no fear. Or these thoughts and experiences don't belong to anybody. They're ownerless. And that, that's a gradual insight that deepens and deepens. And we all know this already because there are things that happen to us that in the past would have felt really personal, like a, a real betrayal, as Spruce mentioned. But now when they happen, it doesn't seem personal. It doesn't seem as personal. Just an example, you know, some of us have been reading the news for a long time, and, uh, you know, it used to be when I thought politicians did stupid things, it was really painful. I mean, it really hurt. Like, how? But now, sometimes I don't even bother to read. <laughs> because I'm not, I mean, that's what politicians do. People have minds mostly driven by greed, anger, and delusion. And so when you have a lot of power and you have a mind driven by greed, anger, and delusion, it's like this. Sometimes it's like this. And sometimes they do really good and wise things. So it's like I don't take the stupidity in Washington personally as much as I used to. And I have a lot less suffering because of that. And life has taught me that taking it personally, like their ignorance or their what I take to be their ignorance that somehow it's personal. That I have to be personally upset because they're that way. I don't have to be personally upset. It's the same thing with my body, you know, getting sick or whatever our body does. I don't have to take that personally. Well, that's what happens. And it's important that we detect this gradual deepening of insight so that we have we, uh, it it uh, helps to shape the refuge. When we take refuge, we're taking refuge in this deepening wisdom. And we see it as something that's real, not imagined in our lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.